just things for me. Hello, podcast legends. My name is Ben Greenwood. This is the Off-Road Performance Coach Podcast, where we share with you how we do things at Race Ready Off-Road Coaching. So if you want to be a beast on and off the dirt bike, you have certainly come to the right place. Today, we are recording another listener Q&A podcast episode. So we're into the month of November now. It's going to be Christmas before we know it. So actually got a fair few questions sent in today. So I'll try to get through them as succinctly as I can and not go down too many rabbit holes. A, a few of them kind of touch on some topics that we've actually discussed in a few of the most recent episodes. So we won't have to go down too deep into some of these topics because you, if you haven't listened to those ep- episodes, you'll be able to just reference back to those. But yeah, thanks to everyone that sent the questions in. We got a fair few questions come in this month so we will get stuck straight into the first one this question was sent in by rhino hughes (laughs) just just joking (laughs) this question one of my followers on instagram knee braces or not which do i prefer he said he's struggling with them and he's thinking about ditching them so number one you don't want to wear a piece of protective equipment or not wear it based on someone else's opinion. So my opinion doesn't really matter that much. It is a personal choice. Personally, I feel more comfortable riding my dirt bike without wearing knee braces. I find I can keep my, I just feel like I can keep my, keep on the balls of my feet and grip the bike better without knee braces. That's my own personal preference. I have never, ever told any of my clients to not wear them. I don't talk to them about it at all. They make their own choices. So what I would say, this is what, this is how I would preface if you are going to consider not wearing knee braces this, these are the requirements that I would, I guess, or some targets you could set yourself because most people wear knee braces because they feel like they're, they're getting extra protection, right? So there's definitely impact protection from wearing a knee brace compared to a knee pad. No doubt about that. There's protection against hyperextending your knee. There is, however, very little protection against rotation. So the tibia can still rotate inside the knee brace. An example of this is, especially for you guys that are riding on the arches of your feet, every time you change gears or use the rear brake wearing knee braces, if a knee brace fully protect or fully stopped your tibia against rotating inside the knee, which is a normal function of the knee, a knee's not a strict hinge joint. The, the tibia can actually rot internally and externally rotate inside the knee. Obviously, it's fairly limited, but it is a natural part of movement in the knee. So if a knee brace fully stopped that, every time you used your rear brake or your gears, 
and you moved your foot in and out, especially when you're riding on the arches of your feet and that's how you use your controls is moving your feet in and out, your whole knee would come off the bike, would come away from the bike. You would have to move your leg or move your foot using your hip. So your foot can still externally and internally rotate wearing a knee brace. Now, when you dab your foot, you're doing 30, 40, 50, 60 K an hour around a corner and you lose your balance or something happens and you dab your foot and that foot hits the ground at a fast rate of knots, you're going forwards and your foot starts going backwards. That rotation is happening at very high speed with a very high amount of force. Knee brace can't stop that. There might be like some minor percentage of protection there, but personally, I don't think it's, it's, it's almost zero. So there's very minor protection coming in that rotational uh, part of the knee. So just be aware of that. doesn't mean throw them in the bin. I'm just, it's most people just think because they get told by the dude at the shop who says, get a, get, you need a set of knee braces. Like don't want to do your ACL. Well, guess what? That, that knee brace probably is not really going to protect your knee against popping your ACL if you dab your foot and it twists your foot around sideways. It's just not. That's just straight up uh, fact. And that's, I guess, the only beef that I have is, and it's not necessarily a beef, but I feel sorry for people when they get sold on knee braces thinking that they're 100% protected and then neck minute bang popped an acl and like shit i've got to have six months off work or, or whatever that looks like so be aware of that number two if you're considering not wearing knee braces these are the these are the requirements that i would set for yourself before you consider not wearing them that is body weight front squats for at least five reps. 150% body weight deadlifts for at least five reps. Plyometrics in your program two times per week minimum and hitting two grams of protein per kilo of body weight in your nutrition. Hit all of those things for at least 12 months in your training. You should have, by then, a decent level of strength and resilience built into your lower limbs. And that's gonna be your best level of protection. Then the do I or don't I wear knee braces thing just comes down to whatever you feel more comfortable with. But the best line of protection for our knees is the way we train and it's providing that stimulus and supporting that with adequate nutrition. So. One big one, protein, enough protein and enough calories. Like we don't want to be in a massive calorie deficit. The body needs the nutrients to build good quality connective tissue. So that's it on knee braces for today. <laughs> um, next question was from a quad rider. Main differences between uh, quad riders and a two-wheeled rider's training. Personally, the way I program for my clients who ride a quad compared to riding a normal dirt bike, 
there's very little, if any, difference to their off-bike training program. What I would say is this is just my what I see with my two eyeballs when I watch. Like I've since Bryson has been my client for the last two and a half, nearly three years now. I've watched almost all of the GNCC quad races. Never watched one before that. <laughs> Never watched a quad race in my life before that. Uh, so this is what I see is one, it's you get them bucked around a, way more on a quad. It looks to me anyway, like it looks, it's like bull riding. Like because you've got the four wheels, it's like in, on a two wheel bike, you just, you're getting pitched for the most part for front to back. Whereas on the quad, you're getting like all four of those wheels are bucking you around. So you're getting like spinal flexion, lateral spinal flexion, rotation, all of these ranges that we do experience on a two-wheel dirt bike, you need to be really strong in those positions to ride a quad. And the other thing that stands out for me is it looks like to be able to turn one of those things properly, like when I watch some of those videos of Bryson like drifting that thing into corners, he's like fully, like his knee is fully flexed and he's in like super deep hip flexion. So he's like squatted down, hanging off the side of the bike to get that thing to turn. So again, we still use those ranges on a two-wheel dirt bike, not really to go around the corner as much as you would on a quad. So all my point there is you just need to be really strong in all of those positions and have make sure you're working on your mobility and you're not restricted in your hip mobility, your knee mobility, and you can produce force in all of those ranges. So again... It's not really any different because for me, all of my clients, all of their programs include all of those things. We're training those, I guess, those positions where we are, uh, what would you say? Positions that are like a little out of your strict neutral positions of hinging, squatting, etc. We train spinal flexion, we train lateral spinal flexion, rotation, all of those movements we train those movements and ranges to get strong in. And we have a massive emphasis on mobility in all of my programs. So all of my clients are, are performing mobility work in all of their sessions. So that's a big focus of the way we do things on race ready programs. And there's not really any difference between how I would program that for whether it was a quad rider or a two wheel dirt bike rider. Again, I would just say that they are areas you most definitely want to have in your program and ensure that you're working on those things in your off-bike program and not just doing like your standard push-pull squat hinge movements. You like you want to be incorporating all of those other ranges of, of strength and mobility into your program because it looks to me, what I see with my eyes, is they are super important to ride a quad. Um Again, that's just what I see with my eyeballs. So next question was thoughts on the Tassie races doing well in the AORCs recently. Um, don't know what my thoughts are there. To be honest, I would say, all again, just don't know a whole lot. My wife's actually from Tasmania, so she's on my case to spend a lot more time in Tassie. I have actually thought about coming down there and running 
doing some training camps. So if anyone's listening to this that is in Tassie and reckons we could make that happen, reach out because that's something I've had on the list for a little while that we could do. Um, however, it looks like, again, just from what I see, like it looks like they've got a real active off-road series down there between the cross-country stuff you seem to have, grass track stuff, sprints. It seems like there's a lot of races going on down there, which is awesome. So that obviously plays a part. Um, and I, I like the only thing I could think about really on my thoughts on that is probably just back to Matt Phillips. Like as, as far as I know anyway, he's probably the first off-road rider from Tassie that's had a really high level of a success. And it's one of those things that when you see someone else do it, it then becomes possible. So maybe that has played a part in it that, yeah, dudes from Tassie see Matt Phillips like when won a world championship. So they're like, well, fuck, he's from Tassie. He did it. Why can't I? Like following his, in his footsteps. So yeah, that would be a couple of thoughts I'd have there potentially. But again, would like to get down to Tassie and actually take my bike and do some riding down there, maybe do some some coaching schools, which would be awesome. Next one was, are CrossFit classes beneficial for moto athletes? So again, if you haven't listened to the podcast episode a few episodes ago on heart rate zones for moto riders, go back and listen to that one because a lot of what I spoke about in that episode refers to this question. The question was, are CrossFit classes beneficial for moto athletes? Short answer, I would say, yes, they are. They're definitely better than doing nothing. However, as I mentioned in that last podcast episode, how I personally program for my clients and how I personally believe we most people get the best results is separating the training. So that means we're separating the strength and separating the conditioning. So when we're training to get strong and powerful, we do that away from fatigue and we're really emphasizing improving the skill of strength and power. And then when we do our conditioning training, where for the most part, it's on a fixed modality, whether that whatever the client has available, it might be a spin bike, might be an assault bike, might be running, it might be a rowing machine. We can tightly control the work to rest ratios and apply the desired amount of stress on the respiratory system to improve our aerobic engine. So that doesn't mean a CrossFit class isn't beneficial, especially if you're like a novice or you've got a low training age, basically anything is going to improve your performance. Like when you're, when you've never really followed a, like a properly structured program for a long period of time, like years. So if the cross, if CrossFit is the thing that gets you off the couch and gets you training and you enjoy it, and it's the difference between you going and training and getting some activity in your life, as opposed to saying, oh, fuck it, I'm just going to sit on the couch today because it's too boring to go to the gym and train on my own and do a, do a strength session or do some intervals on the row or whatever that looks like, then just do it. Like that's, it's a good thing. However, 
if you look at any sport and CrossFit is a prime example of this, at least this is the way I understand it. When you look at CrossFit athletes, the bulk of their training, they are separated. And, and this is what a good CrossFit coach would do. Like I know some coaches who own CrossFit gyms and for the most part, this is how they program. But if you look at these guys, like the highest level CrossFit athletes, their sport is CrossFit, right? So how do they actually train to get better at CrossFit? For a large part of their training, they are separating them. Their sport is performing a Metcon. They're not performing Metcons every single week, week after week. For the a big part of their training program, they work on improving the skill of strength and power. Then they do some traditional endurance style training. Like you hear Matt Fraser talk about doing 90 minute zone two rows on the rowing machine. They're doing interval work, VO2 max intervals. They're doing short, sharp anaerobic intervals with short rest periods. Then as they get closer to the CrossFit games, when they have to compete, for them, the the Metcon becomes their sport-specific training. So they do more Metcon-style training in those last couple of months leading up to the CrossFit games. For us riding dirt bikes, remember the overarching premise is we're not trying to replicate what we do on the bike in the gym. We're just trying to improve the qualities that are required to support the physical demands of our sport. So for a CrossFit athlete, their their sport-specific training is doing a Metcon. For us, it's riding our dirt bike. So for the most part, our training will be improving our strength and power and our aerobic engine. That is best done when they are performed separately. Doesn't mean you're never going to do a Metcon again in your life um, if you enjoy doing them. However, that, yeah, it just, it, people fall into this trap of it. It feels hard because their heart rate's elevated, but the weight they're using won't be making them stronger. And the intensity that, or the, the stress that they're actually placing on their respiratory system would not be as demanding as it may be when you're doing like a strict longer duration interval or a fixed modality interval. So again, it just comes down to our training to make us better. Our training needs to be addressing our biggest limiting factor. So you need to ask yourself the question, is a Metcon or a CrossFit workout actually doing that for me? Or does it just feel hard? Because there's a difference. There's a difference between something just feeling hard and it actually improving our performance or our output on the dirt bike because that's what we're actually trying to do. Remember, we're trying to get better on the dirt bike. Doesn't necessarily matter if we smash through a Metcon in a record time. If that doesn't translate onto improving our performance on the bike, then it's not really worth doing it. (coughs) Excuse me. So that's just my thought there. It's not a hate on CrossFit. Again, like I said, I know plenty of really good CrossFit coaches that run CrossFit gyms that that's how they program. They will do their strength component 
and they have a focused strength component at the start of the session where they're focusing on improving the skill, slowing things down. There's no AMRAPs or time constraints or we're, we're purely performing that part of the session to improve our skill of strength and power. And then they will do some energy system training where it is on a fixed modality. And again, that time, the time can be tightly controlled. The work to rest ratio can be tightly controlled. And then they just might throw on just a short Metcon at the end. So you get that hit, you get that hit of CrossFit of that Metcon style training. However, you've spent some quality time within that session, improving those skills separately. So again, like, like everything out there, there's good CrossFit and there's not so good CrossFit. <laughs> so it just comes down to having a, at the end of the day, it just comes down to having a good coach that understands what you're trying to achieve and how they can help you improve your biggest physical limitation. So next one was about grip strength. My grip is the first to fail on long, steep technical climbs in hard enduro. Is this as simple as just getting stronger? Short answer to that question is yes. So in hard, in like, it, like normal off-road motocross, like everyone hears the loose arms uh, when it comes to riding technique and gripping with our legs, being in a solid attack position so we don't have to use our arms as much. I'm all about that. There is times though when you have to grip the bars hard, like the rougher the track gets, the deeper, sandier tracks, you're going to have to grip the bars to to manipulate or give the bike the input that you want to give it. When you get right back off the bike to keep that rear wheel on the ground through a set of sand rollers, like you're going to have to use your grip to get yourself back to the front of the bike. There's no two ways around that. So... When you think about hard enduro or more technical off-road riding, another example of that is a really long, steep hill climb. When it's that steep that maybe your feet are off the pegs or it's that steep that even though you are like driving your feet into the foot pegs, it's that steep that if you don't hang on to the bars tight, like you're literally falling off the back of the bike. So hard enduro is a, a perfect example of that of a, I guess a genre of dirt bike riding where I personally believe it's just a prerequisite that you need to have a really, really outstanding level of grip strength. One, to hang onto the bars like that. Two, like you see these guys getting stuck in crevices or whatever it is and they've literally got to lift their bike out or over an obstacle. So if you've got poor grip strength, you're going to struggle in that situation. So my question, my answer to that question would be yes, it would be improving grip strength. How do you do that? Two of my like just simple exercises are a passive hang. My minimum standard on a passive hang would be two minutes, at least two minutes. If you're struggling to get two minutes, then I'd be working on improving it. And how like a passive hang is going to improve if you do it consistently. If you just did a max effort passive hang once a day, every day, your grip strength will get better without doubt. Then is just an RDL. 
an RDL using a barbell or really heavy dumbbells, you're testing your group strength. So say you do eight reps on an RDL with a slow tempo, like a two, two seconds down, one second pause at the bottom, power back up. That's quite a bit of time. It's probably going to take you like close to a minute, maybe a little bit quicker, maybe a little bit longer, depending on how you go. But it's my point there is it's a long duration of time with your grip holding on to that weight. So that again, that's going to improve grip strength. So they're just two simple ones. We, I basically have at least one RDL or at least one hinge variation in all of my clients' programs at one time, sometimes two, depending on how many times they can train a week and if it's a, a big weakness for them. So they're just two simple things you can include is RDLs and passive hang. Passive hang is the easiest one. Like you don't need to warm up to do a passive hang. You don't need, all you need is a bar or a set of gymnastic rings hung out of a tree or hung off your back veranda. Every time you walk past or one, one time a day when you walk past, just go bang, max effort, passive, passive hang. You, your grip has to get better if you do that every day. It's a simple thing that anyone could do that will improve your grip strength. Like I've had like 60, 60 year old grandmothers in my gym when I used to have my gym in Yak that could do a two minute, two minute passive hang. Like Karen, one of the ladies, she was 60 year old grandmother and she busted out a two and a half minute passive hang. So if you ride a dirt bike and you want to be dragging the thing up and down a hill, especially in hard enduro, I would say that's a minimum requirement would be two minutes. Try it. Test yourself. And if you're way under it, I'd be hitting it every day until you can at least get two minutes easily and comfortably. Next question was about motos. So the question was, looking at mixing up doing 25 to 30 minute and one hour motos for cross-country training. Was thinking of doing some shorter, intense motos like 15-minute sprints at the quickest lap of my 25 to 30-minute moto pace. So, and then he, he went on to say, I'm, I'm really not sure how to structure something different from standard 30-minute moto training. Just want to mix things up. Okay, so the, my suggestions there would be at least this is what my clients do when they're doing a longer duration moto, say a 30 minute moto. The goal of that session is consistent lap times. So ideally we want the last lap of that moto to be as close as possible to the first lap. So you mentioned there that you're looking at doing some 15-minute sprints at the quickest lap of your 30-minute moto. If all you're going to do in a sprint is the quickest lap of your 30-minute moto, then it's that's not really a sprint. So a sprint, the idea of sprinting is it's faster than the pace we could ride for 30 minutes. So potentially that might mean that you need to pace yourself better in your 30-minute motos. Like some of my clients, these are like my really, really good clients that are like winning at the highest level of our sport. Their lap times 
on a 30 minute moto will be within two to three seconds, like on the high end, three seconds, and they will lay down a fastest lap on the last lap of a 30 minute moto. So they pace themselves and they are like super consistent within a couple of seconds of each lap for 30 minutes. And then they can still drop the hammer on the last lap and go faster on the last lap. So that is what I would work on in your 30-minute motos is maybe slowing down a little bit at the start and pacing yourself better. So finding your pace. Other way to improve that's obviously off-bike training. Like basically the pace we can maintain for a longer duration like that obviously comes down to seat time as well. But outside of that, it's our physical fitness. So our strength and our aerobic fitness is going to be the limiting factor that for most people that that dictates how fast we can go for a consistent pace over a 30 minute moto so i'd be looking at pacing yourself better and aiming to get those lap times as consistent as you can on your 30 minute motos and then when you do your sprints ideally we want those sprints to be faster than your 30 minute pace because if it's not it's not really a sprint So I'd look at even shorter sprints. So one example of that is a two-minute sprint or say you've got like a motocross track's good for this because it's most motocross tracks are sort of a 90-second to two-minute lap time. So you can just do one lap, a one-lap sprint on a motocross track and say it takes you two minutes, then you rest for two minutes. And you might do that for six to 10 repeats. And though, again, we want over those 10 repeats, we want those lap times to be as consistent as possible, but we also want them to be faster than what you're doing in a 30-minute moto. Another example could be like a longer duration way to do that would be doing a 15-minute moto with five minutes rest in between. And you could go like stretch that all the way out to four repeats. So it's an hour's total riding, but you're having a small five-minute break. So again, the goal there would be that those lap times are slightly faster than what you could do for a 30-minute moto. So they're just a couple of examples of the way you could structure things. Personally, I believe most people focus too much on doing long duration. And they just end up riding at this pace, especially if you're riding on your own. If you maybe if you're doing that like with a bunch of guys, like if there's half a dozen of you and it's almost like a race and you're riding for 45 minutes or an hour, there may be some and the caveat there being that all the other guys are faster than you, so you're having to chase them, so you're actually having to push yourself for an hour. If you just ride at your own pace for an hour, the pace you ride at will be way lower than the intensity you're going to have to face when you race. So most people will get more benefit from doing shorter duration, higher intensity efforts because that intensity will be a lot closer to the intensity that you'll actually get on race day. So that doesn't mean you're never going to do like longer duration. Like it, There is still some value to just getting hours up and building up that longer duration volume to improve your capacity. But again... If you think of that specificity thing, like potentially the further away 
you are from the race, then maybe you do longer duration volume just to get that capacity up. And then the closer you get to your goal races, you're working more on intensity because you've already built the capacity. Um, if you're like three weeks away from a race, you're not really going to change that much in terms of you, the capacity you can handle, but you can improve the intensity in terms of that, like that specificity of what you're doing on the bike. So that's just some things to think about there. Um, but yeah, like I say, I can tell you like m- my clients that again, are getting results at the highest level, they're very rarely do a 40 minute moto. Most of their motos are twenties or thirties or sprints, Like there's lots of sprints in there definitely. But when they do motos, it's either a 20 or a 30, sometimes a 40, um, when there's some, when there's training specifically for a longer duration event like Hatter, or it's in the off season when they are trying to build a bit of that capacity, some of it might be like a 45 minute moto. But they are few and far between compared to the 20s and the 30s. So that's just sharing that with you like, that's what these guys are doing at the highest level of our sport. They're not just going and riding their bike for two hours. So some stuff to think about there. Then we got two to go. Currently, I have no idea what I'm doing with the rowing machine. I basically get on and either do 30 minutes, see how far I can row and try and beat it each time. Or I just do short intervals, full intensity along with other cardio, but I feel like I'm getting nowhere. So, number one, if you feel like you're getting nowhere, you want to have some metric that you're actually testing every six to eight weeks. That is your benchmark. So, you know you're actually getting getting better. So, for me, the big ones on the rower are a 2K, a 5K, or a 10K time trial. So, a 2K is going to be around about that seven-minute mark for the average person. A 5K could be anywhere from 16 to 20, depending on where you're at. A 10K is going to be like 30, a bit over 35 to 40, a bit over 40 for the, depending on where you're at. So you've got like around about a seven minute, around about a 17 to 18 minute and a 30, like a 38 to 40 minute. So there's, like three different durations is what I'm getting at there. One's like short, but it's still long enough for it to be very demanding on the aerobic system. And then you've got your closer to a 20-minute effort and then closer to a 40-minute effort. So they're just three really good tests you can use on a rower. And that's the reason why I love rowing because, or the, the Concept2 rower specifically, is because the numbers don't lie. You're either getting faster or you're not. And that machine will tell you very quickly whether you're going backwards or whether you're getting better. So that would be my first thing is checking in on those. You don't have to do them all at the same time. Maybe you spread them out and you do one one every two weeks. You do like a 2K and then two weeks later, you might do a 5K test. Two weeks later, you do a 10K and you sort of, you could rotate through them potentially or you could just spread them out. 
there's lots of ways you can do it, but you want to be checking in on them every couple of months, I would say, to just that's going to tell you whether you're getting better. Then it comes down to simply like a real simple structure is, and this is basically how we do it on the Race Ready Live program, is three separate sessions. One of those sessions is uh, some sort of longer interval works for the most interval work for the most part. It's a real simple example of that might be a th- sort of around that three to four minute effort mark. So a 1K sprint is really good for that. For most people, it's going to be around that three and a half to four minute mark. So you might just do four times 1K repeats. So that's sort of that longer sort of VO2 max style um, effort. And then the next session or another session in the week might be shorter sprints where it's a somewhere between a 30 to 60 second repeat and it might have a shorter rest period so it might be a one-to-one work rest ratio potentially and you could do anywhere from sort of five to ten repeats or even more depending on where you're at and then you would just have a long duration aerobic effort where you might do a 10k row for time but you'll set yourself a heart rate target and say i'm not going to go over 140 i'm just going to do like a lower intensity aerobic effort so that's three sessions that you could do each week that are sort of targeting those different areas of energy system training where most people will be limited by. So limited by their respiratory system, limited by their ability to utilize oxygen very quickly, or limited by like their aerobic capacity and ability to deliver oxygen. So mixing them up and again for most people they're limited by all of those things but it's being aware that our pro- as a individual athlete our progress will always come from addressing our biggest limiting factor whatever that is at a personal level so for most people that's it's everything so that's just a simple way to break it up across your week and that's how we do it on the race ready live program is we've got three separate sessions and One's a longer duration interval and one's a shorter duration interval. And then there's a longer steady state aerobic effort in there as well. So that's your biggest progress will come from figuring out for the most part, most people, it's just consistency. It's just actually being consistent with hitting the sessions consistently every week for at least six to eight weeks to see progress. Like my clients that some of my clients have been with me for, some of them have been with me for five years now, but uh, like I think to some of my clients that who are at a high level in our sport have been with me for two, three years now and they're like doing a lot of volume and a lot of consistency. They're hitting their sessions every single week, week after week, year after year. So the more experienced you become and the more consistent you become with your training, the gains are going to be much less. So they're like chipping away at seconds. They're trying to chip like five seconds off their 2K row time trial. They're trying to chip two seconds off the average pace they can maintain in a 10K row. So at the start, when you're very new to training, those that progress is going to be huge. 
and it's going to be quick. Like you might, you could chop like 30 seconds off your 2K row time trial fairly easily just by training consistently for the average person. But again, just be aware that the more you train, the more consistent you are, those gains become less and less and smaller and smaller. It does, doesn't mean you stop training. It just means that everyone's going to have this threshold that where, where they sort of get to with the available time that they have and the, their ability to support that with recovery, adequate food, nutrition, sleep. So you're going to have this sort of threshold where you get to that the gains are going to start to slow down. Again, doesn't mean you stop training. It just means that you're going to be fighting and training for seconds as opposed to minutes. So just be aware of that. Be consistent and retest. If, if you do... If you are consistent for six to eight weeks and you've retest and nothing changes or you go backwards, then you need to evaluate what you've done. Okay, maybe I need to change the volume around. Maybe I need to do less intensity and more low intensity aerobic work or it might be the other way. You might need to do your aerobic base might be really good. So maybe you need to trim that back and actually do more volume on the intensity. Again, everyone's different. It's just, it's trying, testing, assessing. So last one real quick was about Epstein-Barr. So how do you know if you have EBV and is there anything you can do about it? Warning signs, treatment, etc. So I don't know a whole heap about it in all honesty. Luckily, I do a good job of not overtraining my clients and I'm I'm pretty confident that my clients the amount of volume I give my clients is way less than what a lot of guys are doing at the high level of our sport so it's not something that I've had to deal with on the front line a lot but I do know what how you would know is one it would show up in your blood work for sure so if you got you if you're getting your blood work tested there'd be various markers in there that would indicate it. Before that, before you even got to that though, you'd be feeling chronically fatigued, low energy, immune system would be weak, getting sick more frequently. There's definitely no no way you're finishing a three-hour race at intensity if you've, if you've got Epstein-Barr, that's for sure. Um, what causes it basically just comes down to overtraining and under-recovering. So if you think back again, that episode I did on the recovery bucket basically just means the bucket's overflowed for too long. That's all it means when you get something like EBV or chronic fatigue or like insert any other of those sort of fatigue-related illnesses is the bucket has overflowed for too long. There's been too much stress coming into the bucket which hasn't been met with enough sleep, nutrition, and stress management. That basically all it is. Overstressed, underfed, underslept. How do you fix it? You just got to let the body recover. So you're going to have to strip your training volume way back. Maybe that means like, I know people who have had chronic fatigue that don't really train that much. 
they're just stressed to the eyeballs. So there's a whole heap of stress in their life and they're not eating anywhere near enough food and getting enough sleep. And they might not necessarily get EBV, but they'll end up chronically fatigued. So it's not just about training load. Again, think back back to the recovery bucket. Training is a big part of the stress we place on our body. And for some people, it is a massive part. Like if you're doing like two sessions a day and trying to do like, 100 mile bike rides and these things that some of these guys are doing then that is a lot of stress so you're going to have to strip that back but what you need to do is figure out where the stress is coming from and is it just training because for some people it's not just training for some people it's other things going on in their life that are piling that stress on so basically to how do you get over it is you got to strip the stress away remove the stress and increase all of the recovery components so you're going to have to sleep more as much as you possibly can you're going to have to eat more so you'd want to be putting yourself into a calorie surplus which might mean that you're actually going to put on a little bit of weight for a while which you're going to have to be okay with you're going to have to be okay with the fact that you might put on two three maybe even five kilos of body fat because you're going to give your body more than what it needs and you're going to have to do that for a long period of time It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take months and months and months of consistently giving the body more than what it needs and creating a lower level of stress. That's it. That's basically it. (laughs) Like if you've listened to all of my podcasts and you know my story, like I basically cooked myself 10 years ago, never got tested for Epstein-Barr, but I was, I would classify myself personally as chronically fatigued and that's basically what I had to do. I had to like remove all of that stress from my life and increase my calories and sleep more. And it took years and years and years for me personally to get over that. So yeah, ideally we never, we like, that's why I'm so big on, not overdoing training volume. I'm like a big minimum effective dose guy when it comes when it comes to coaching my athletes and getting them to eat, educating them on why it is so important to eat enough calories. Cuz when we can do those things, when we can when we can move our physical capacity forward with the smallest amount of volume and we can support that with the adequate amount of calories then ideally we don't run into anything like Epstein-Barr. Then we have a much more fruitful and longer career for these guys. Whether that's like at the highest level of our sport, winning championships, or whether it's just like guys that want to go and just race their state series for another decade and have fun with their friends and family. Um, it's not necessarily about performing it's not always about winning championships like you you could just be like a a mid-pack vet rider guy that just wants to go and race his local series and have fun with his friends and family for the next 10 years and if you cook yourself well guess what you're not gonna be able to do that so so yeah it's not these things apply whatever level you're at whether you're the proest of the pros or 
you're just a, an amateur level vet guy that just wants to go and have some fun. So hopefully that was, what are we get to? Nearly 50 minutes. Hopefully there was some value for you guys in there. I really do appreciate all of you that send in the questions. Um, I think this will be pretty sure this is episode 99. So episode 100 is going to be a little bit of a uh, story time to reflect on where this journey has come from, where it's led me to and where it's going, particularly with the podcast and the business. And I've got, I know I've been talking about it for a while, but good things take time. And I've been making sure that I've been prepared to be able to deliver these at with a, a high level of production quality. Uh, we've got the first of our guest episodes will be coming next week once we get past this 100, finally tick off the 100th episode. So next week we will be launching some of the guest podcast episodes. So I'm really looking forward to them. And I know there's going to be some, again, just more value for you guys that that listen to the podcast and are into all things around off-road racing, whether that be riding our dirt bikes, training, our nutrition, our mindset. We've got some really cool guests coming up that are going to cover all of those topics and more. So again, I appreciate you all for listening, especially appreciate you all for sending in the questions. Um, And yeah, that's it for today. Thank you. We'll see you on next episode.